second, but before we jump into it, I want to ask you a question, and I'll, I'll qualify this question uh, a little bit after I ask it to you about why I'm asking it, but let me ask you this question. How is Christianity working for you? How is Christianity working for you? Here's how I want to qualify that. I don't believe in Christianity as, as some kind of pragmatic exercise. Uh, but the sad part, the sad reality is, is that many people look at Christianity just that way. They, they look at Christianity as uh, something that where they're focused on some kind of end result in their life. So the question itself, how, how is Christianity working for you, uh, reveals your expectations. You expect God to make you healthy? Then being unhealthy would seem to hurt your faith. You expect God to keep expect for God to keep you from suffering. If so, then suffering hitting your life, which always does, will shake your faith. You expect God to make you prosper, then poverty will make you struggle. You see, a number of people walk away from the faith because they claim Christianity doesn't work. They expect a certain result that maybe God never really even promised. And in fact, this morning, um, on Wednesday nights and, and Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights for the, the adults, and then for Sunday mornings uh, for our college class, we're going through the screw tape letters. And in letter number four, where screw tape is writing to Wormwood about prayer, he actually uh, encourages uh, Wormwood to try and tempt, uh, to, uh, tempt this young new Christian. To imagine when he is praying, to imagine not what is biblical about God, but what he has conceived in his own mind. A composite of God that, in effect, is not really God at all. And I, I just asked the college class this morning, I was like, do you get what he's saying here? Ideas have consequences. And if you let unbiblical beliefs about God influence your view of God, then you can actually end up praying very fervently to a God of your own creation to a God that doesn't really even exist. That's a scary thing and, and makes me so thankful that God gave us his word so that we can have beliefs about God that are from him. Not things that we've created, but they're from him. And so some people walk away from the faith because they claim Christianity doesn't work. And one of the purposes of the series this year is to help us rightly orient our expectations so that we don't define hope in a way that leaves us hopeless. Let me say that again. One of the purposes of the series this year, this His Story series, is to help us rightly orient our expectations so that we don't define hope in a way that leaves us hopeless. You see, you might say, is it possible to define hope in a way that leaves us hopeless? Can you actually do that? And I would say that yes, you can. Our world is in need of people who accurately define hope, in need of people who are ambassadors of real biblical hope. And I pray that as you sit through this message today, as we look at these scriptures together, that as you leave here, may not that you will be solidified in it, because there, there's some there's some weight to it, there's some things that you need to, you need to do some self-examination about, but I pray that as you leave here today, that you would become just that, ambassadors of a real biblical hope hope, not just able to tell somebody where they can find hope, but actually living it yourself. 
So today we're going to turn our eyes upon this minor prophet, Habakkuk. Three short chapters, and recognizing that Habakkuk, being in the midst of a hopeless circumstance, he's going to find hope. And in doing so, he's going to show us how to find hope as well. So the first thing that we're going to see here is Habakkuk's honesty. Habakkuk's honesty. Now through the prophets, we've seen a few types of approaches to these prophetic books. We look at the story of Jonah, and the book just simply tells his story. We get a little bit of dialogue between him and God, but for the most part, it's just the story of Jonah. And then we considered prophetic books like Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. They prophesied against Israel, against Judah, and against the surrounding nations. They addressed the issues of idolatry, and they called God's people to repent. That was the specific thrust of their books. The book of Habakkuk is slightly different, which is one of the reasons that it has appealed to many throughout the years. I remember when Mania and I first started dating, we um, we actually did a study together that was uh, it was a it was a prayer journal. And it was uh, one of these things where you literally, you would write out every, every prayer. I mean, you, you, you would have a time each day where you would write out from start to finish everything you prayed for and the, the specific words that you were praying. And while it was very tedious at the, in, in the beginning, eventually it just became uh, like something that you would, uh, that you, you, could just, you could just sit down and write. And you were just expressing your thoughts and your, your heart to God. And, uh, and some, sometimes I don't, but most of the time I do, um, I, I keep a prayer journal and now it's, it's not in a book. It's, it's on, it's on Evernote, but, um, regardless of that, when I think about what maybe, uh, my daughters will look at one day when I'm not here anymore, when I think about the legacy of that prayer journal, I think about the fact that it's going to be a very, very honest look at their dad. Because when you, when you read that, those prayers, you get, you get the real Ryan Johnson. There, there's no fluff. There's no, there's no disguise. There's no, uh, there's no mask because it's just me and the Lord talking. And in some in some cases, it will probably uh, it will probably challenge their perspective their perspective of me over the years. And that's one of the reasons that the book of Habakkuk is so it's so engaging is because that's exactly what you're getting. You're getting a little slice or a little segment of Habakkuk's personal prayer journal. And in, in getting that personal prayer journal, you're getting a very honest approach to God. You're getting a very honest evaluation of how Habakkuk sees things. And some of you will probably, if you if you would take some time to read the book of Habakkuk all the way through, you might even be uncomfortable with the kind of candor that Habakkuk expresses to God. But I want to encourage you that if we've seen anything in the minor prophets, it's that God welcomes that honesty. God does not want you to approach him with fluff and superficiality. God does not want you to approach him in a way where you are just trying to put on religiosity. God wants you to approach him with your heart poured out to him. 
And so that's what you're getting with the book of Habakkuk, because Habakkuk was living in a time of great distress in southern Israel, known as Judah. Rampant idolatry and injustice has been embraced among God's people, and even the leaders affirmed it. And so within the first chapter, here's what you get. I'm just kind of summarizing it for you here on the screen. Within this first chapter, here's what you get. Habakkuk says, God, why don't you do something? God says, I am doing something. Habakkuk says, God, why are you doing what you're doing? And God says, you must have faith. That's, that's the best summary that I can give you of the, of the first two chapters. So I'm just summarizing the half the book of, of Habakkuk for you. God, Habakkuk says, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing anything? God says, I am. Why, Habakkuk says, why are you doing that? God says, basically, you're not going to understand. Even if I told you what I was doing, you're not going to understand it. you got to have faith. And so God responds in this way that might be perplexing to us. But remember when we studied through the book of Job. Job, for 38 chapters, asks question after question after question after question after question. And the end of that book, here's what we saw when we studied the book of Job. We saw that God has never committed himself to answering all your questions because in answering all your questions, he is stripping you of the most essential part of what it means to walk with him, namely faith. You see, if God answers all your questions, then you're not going to depend on God. You're going to depend on your knowledge. You're going to depend on those answers. You're going to depend on, on, on yourself and your understanding of the situation. But God gives you enough of an answer to nurture your faith so that you can endure, so that you can have hope. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Habakkuk. God does respond, but he responds in a way that Habakkuk doesn't understand. So let's jump into the specifics, okay? And so the first thing that he, uh, that he says specifically is, how long? Verse 2, chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Like I said, you're going to see honesty. You're going to see candor. God commends this honesty from us. The writer Elizabeth Elliot says it's always best to go first for our answers to Jesus himself. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Elizabeth Elliot says that was a human cry, a cry of desperation, springing from his heart's agony at the prospect of being put into the hands of wicked men and actually becoming sin for you and me. We can never suffer anything like that, yet at times we feel forsaken and cry, why, Lord? You see, the psalmist also asked why. Job, a blameless man, suffering horrible torments on an ash heap, asked why. It does not seem to me to be sinful to ask the question. What is sinful is resentment against God and his dealings with us. I guarantee you that for almost every single person in this room, there have been questions you have afraid to ask God. And if you could, if you could start with anything here from the back end, don't be afraid to ask any question. It's not a sin to ask any question. What is a sin is resenting God for what he's doing. Even if you don't understand it, cry out to him. Ask him that. 
God wants you to be honest, even if you have doubts. Um, many of you heard last week or two weeks ago that J.D. Greer became president of the Southern Baptist Convention. J.D. Greer is a pastor at Summit Church in North Carolina. And this is what he says about this, uh, this idea of faith and questioning and specifically doubts. He says, express those doubts that you have. He said, doubt is like this. So, um, I, I, I do not pretend to be a softball player, okay? Uh, not at all. I, not at all. I just, uh, I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, but as I've been coached by my fellow teammates, because I welcome that, I'm like, please help me, uh, you know, not to just hit it to the same person all the time. Um, as I've been coached by my teammates uh, and my wife, who's in- incredibly uh, helpful in that, in that area too, um, but uh, she, she talks about, she talks about, and these, my, my fellow teammates have talked about, when you get up to bat, the preparedness, right? And it, it's all about that preparedness, the anticipation of the ball, where, and, and being able to analyze. This is me talking, okay? They don't actually say these things to me, but in my brain trying to work it out. Me trying to analyze uh, the pitch as it's coming, where it's going to land, where it's going to cross the plate, if the ball strikes, outside, inside, all those kind of things. It's really intense uh, mental exercise for me, sadly. Um, but but the thing is, is they always talk about your your feet, and they always tell me, Ryan, you got such a such a how can I put it gently, a solid foundation down here, right? You got such a solid foundation, you should be able just to just to bomb on that thing, you know. But my footwork's bad, and so I'm trying to work on my footwork. Okay, and but the whole idea, the, the, the group that I've gotten into, is to is to is to is to have my foot kind of cocked up right here. If you can't see, because I got short legs, I'm very I'm very short. Uh, is that have my foot kind of off the ground a little bit, but planting right and ready to move if I have to. That, as, as horrible of an illustration as that is, that's what Gady Greer compares doubt to. He says it's like a foot poised to take a step. Think about it. Doubt is like a foot poised to take a step, just either in the right direction towards truth or in the wrong direction towards unbelief. God is not afraid of your questions, and he's not afraid of your doubts. In fact, like Philip prayed earlier, Your doubts are usually a pathway to a greater understanding of who he is. Faith that hasn't been tested with doubt is shallow and fragile. You see, God wants to grow and strengthen so many times he will use your doubts to do just that. And our tendency, instead of being honest, we'll just sit back and we'll we'll do something else that Screw Tape talks to Wormwood about, but we'll just parrot prayers. We'll lean on this, this meaningless repetition of prayers, and instead of honestly pouring our hearts out to God, and back it provides a great example of this kind of honesty, but then look at chapter 2, verse 1. He said, I will 
he, he kind of states his complaint, and he says, I will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so Habakkuk pours out his heart to God, but then he doesn't leave. Sometimes we just treat prayer like a one-sided conversation, right? And we, we pour out our heart to God, but then we just get up and act as if, well, you know, maybe he'll call and leave a message later on. That, that's not the way it works. Just as you pour out your heart to God, waiting and abiding in the midst of that crying out is of utmost importance. And that way we nurture that honesty. And so how quick are we to pray for something and then forget to seek an answer or wait for an answer? Maybe today that you're struggling with God in prayer. Without honesty, without this continual prayer, you will struggle to find hope. And remember, that's ultimately what we're after. So let's, let's move on to this question that Habakkuk asks God in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Doesn't this question sound familiar to you? This question is the age-old question about the problem of evil. Just as no temptation has seized us except what is common to man, there is no question that we can ask that people haven't asked of God before. Philosophers trace this question back as far as the 5th century B.C. to Greek philosopher Epicurus. And he, he phrased it this way, how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil to continue on in the world? Uh, maybe Epicurus got it from Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk pre predated Epicurus. He, in verse 2, he says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. The we can surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. You see, the Bible declares that God is an all-powerful creator. He is the all-powerful creator of this world. But he loves this world more than we do. And so why in the world would God allow evil to persist? That's the question that Habakkuk asked, and that's the reason that so many people love Habakkuk, because he's not afraid to ask that question. But the fact is, is that as Christians, this is the single most asked question of Christians. We needed to be ready for this question. How can an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil to continue on in the world? Well, I want to answer that question by giving you a couple of illustrations, and let's think about this. This idea of God being all good and all powerful. And any illustration that we use is going to be limited in scope because we're not God, right? But as, as most of you in this room have, have had kids uh, uh, or grandkids, and there's always that horrible time where you have to, something happens, emergency or whatever, and you have to take your kid to the hospital, right? And uh, I, I still remember that one of the first times that we had to do this. Um, and uh, they had to put an IV in one of my daughter's arms. Now, if you're a parent and you've ever had to uh, to endure this experience, there's no amount of training that can prepare you for it, right? And if you've ever been through it. Because, because the fact is, is that uh, this child, young child, does not understand what's going on, do they? You, 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 I mean, especially, I think, um, maybe uh, maybe uh, two or three years old was the first time we had to do that. Uh, one of our daughters was two or three years old. And so we had to take them to the hospital. And you can say all you want, but we're going to have to 
put a needle in your arm to help you. And sometimes that word needle, it's like ingrained in children from the day they're born to be scared of that, right? So, so they had to put a needle in her arm, and what did the nurses look at the parents and say? You gotta hold them down. Oh my goodness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth that can raise the dead. I mean, it's like it's such a high-pitched scream. I'm amazed there's not like DHR automatically arriving at the hospital from two doors down. I mean, it, it, it was it was horrific. But then they have to go and they have to say your name because their eyes are darting around the room in the midst of the pain that they feel and the fact that you're having to hold them down, you're the one who's supposed to protect them. And they feel betrayed because they don't understand the situation. And so they look to you and they're saying your name and normally you rush to protect them, but why are you not protecting them? Why are you holding them down? Why are you allowing them to experience that pain? Well, the parent, we know the answer to that question. Because in order to arrive at the ultimate result, which is health, right? Health return, you've got to endure this pain right now. And as parents, we get that. We understand that. Is it easy for us? No. And I would persuade you that some of the things that we see from God in the Old Testament, especially in the minor prophets, it's not easy for him either. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 36. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, therefore turn and live. God feels these emotions, even though he's not controlled by these emotions. Jesus weeps with Mary and Martha, even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so... It's not as if God is up there just inflicting pain upon us just for the fun of it. But God, being an all-powerful creator, knows that if he is going to bring about the desired results of our good and his glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and salvation coming to the earth, Habakkuk asks this question and God says, right now, I could tell you the answer, but it wouldn't even make sense to you. And that's the second illustration that I, I'd like to just pose. If you want to understand, because some people say, okay, okay, I'll concede that God's all-powerful and that there's some good that's going to come out of it, but I want to see that good. I'm going to see that good. If you're telling me just to endure so that I can see some good, I'm going to see that good, right? Not necessarily. Imagine... If, uh, if you got called by the director of a movie, he's finished with it, he wants your opinion. And you arrive at the movie theater and you're standing there and the director looks at you and he says, okay, I want you to tell me what you think about this movie. I'm going to ask you some questions. So when you go in, I want you to make sure to pay attention. But the key is, it's a two-hour movie. I'm only going to let you be in there for a minute. Go in, 60 seconds goes by pretty quickly, and you come back out, and he says, okay, what was the plot? Who were the main characters, and how was the plot resolved in the end? How are you going to respond? I don't know. Why? How can you not know that? Because I only could see a glimpse. I only saw a minute. You see, we can't understand in the little bitty, of a moment when we are suffering in this life, 
We can't understand why. We won't be able to get it. We've got to trust that there is a director, all-good, all-powerful creator who is not surprised by our suffering, but has actually permitted our suffering so that we can taste and see that he is good in ways that we never, ever have before. And this is what God tells Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing the work in your days that if you that you would not believe if told. And so if you're Habakkuk, you're a prophet of God, how in the world do you find hope? We'll flip over chapter 3. I've got to summarize chapters 1 and 2 for you, and I want you to see in chapter 3 where Habakkuk finds his hope. And in this way, Habakkuk will disciple us in how to find hope ourselves. You see, hope doesn't come from complete answers. Hope comes from faith. In fact, if you if you wanted to, and some of you may have already turned the page, but if you want to underline chapter 2, verse 4, that last part of the verse, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. How are we supposed to respond when God says you can't understand it? You're only going to see a glimpse. Trust me that I'm working it for your good and for my glory. How do you respond? You respond with faith. The righteous will live by faith. So chapter 3 actually records Habakkuk's faith-filled response to what God has said in chapters 1 and 2. And this is where we want to learn from Habakkuk, how we're all faith and arrive at hope. Because we're going to look at specifically, we're going to get specifically how to find hope. And it's a pathway that we walk on to find this hope. So chapter 3, verse 2, look at what Habakkuk says. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, I know I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so over the next few verses, uh, uh, pretty much through verse 13, Habakkuk is going to use poetic language to remember the Exodus and everything surrounding the Exodus. That's what this first part of chapter 3 is about. Remember, you're getting a, getting a look into Habakkuk's prayer life. Habakkuk is recalling to his mind the password of salvation. Remember, they had not experienced the cross yet. So in the Old Testament, the Exodus was the ultimate uh, story of deliverance. And so what does Habakkuk do? He recalls his mind back to what God had done to display his faithfulness, to display his power, to display that he knew exactly what he was doing with his people Israel who were caught up in slavery in the most powerful nation on earth at that time, Egypt. And so look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. That's a reference to Mount Sinai. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence and a plague that followed at its heels regarding the, the plagues that he poured out in Egypt. Look at verse 10. The mountains saw you and lied. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. That is the splitting of the Red Sea. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped, and the fire of your glittering spirit. That's the day that the sun stood still for Joshua. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That is God bringing Egypt and specifically Pharaoh to its knees. 
See, remembering God's past victories reminded Habakkuk that God has unlimited power and that he is working from his eternal purposes. And so if you want to know how to find hope, the first thing that you need to do is you need to look at God's past work. You need to look at God's past work. And remember, there's even even uh, at one point uh, in the past six months, I, I can't remember which message it was, but we, we rooted this in the understanding of uh, studies in neurology, even. Talking about how God has hardwired our brain. And there's something that you can go to Google called neuroplasticity, right? And it's neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the actual act of remembering the works of God, what it does is it creates pathways in your own brain for it to become easier for you to remember the works of God. The more you remember, the more often you remember, the easier it will be to remember. It's like muscle memory for your brain. And so God tells us to be grateful. God's actually calling us to discipline ourselves in remembering his victories. I love uh, in, the, in the movie... Um, the most recent one that, or one of the, I think it was the most recent one that came out, War Room, uh, that the Kendrick Brothers from Albany did. And Miss Clara, there, when you walked up the stairs, she had the wall, right? And it was the wall of answered prayer. And, and I'll be honest, like when I saw that, I'm like, does anybody really do that? And then it's like the Spirit of God just like slaps me across the face, I'm like, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, how many how many meaningless trophies have I kept from my past? And yet those answered prayers are my very hope-giving spiritual life, what the Habakkuk would say in his prayer time. God, I've heard the reporting. I remember what you've done in the midst of this year. Revive it. Do it again, Lord. So remembering God's past victories reminded the back of that God has unlimited power and he is working for his eternal purposes. Look at verse 16. He said, I hear, after he, after he prays these things, he remembers what God has done. He said, I hear my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's talking about the fact that Babylon was poised to invade southern Judah at the time. And he says, God, I know that's coming. The days that I'm in are bleak right now, but that doesn't change your power in the past, and that doesn't change your command in the present. Habakkuk's faith was not rooted in his present situation or his feelings about it. This is where we, if we are governed by a worldview based on an emotion, then we will not ever, listen to me, find enduring peace. If you have a worldview or a way of operating in your, day, in your daily life or emotion, your feelings, it's what guides you, then you will never find enduring peace. Because you're not looking at God's past victories and his promises, you are instead looking at your situation and your emotions will be dictated by that situation and you will not find hope or enduring peace. Habakkuk doesn't, doesn't ignore his present situation. It doesn't act as if it's not happening. But instead, what he does is he says, I choose to rejoice. Look at verse 18. It 
start actually start in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, they're all bad things. It's like it's like the back of this country song, right? Though the fig tree should not blossom, or the fruit be on the vines, and the produce and the olive fail, and the fields yet yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice. You see, joy is not based on feelings. Joy is a choice. And so looking at God's past work leads us to choose to rejoice in the present. Because we recognize that God is not God is not hindered by my situation. God is not hindered by what's going on now. So I look at his past work, which leads me to choose to rejoice in the present, which leads me to verse 19, which is says this, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You see what he's saying there? He is saying that when you find yourself focusing on, on God's character and when you choose to rejoice, you will find yourself abiding in the presence of God. Habakkuk is not talking about finding joy in the things that God gives because those things might not always be there. Think about that. If you draw your joy from your job, as a, even as the provision of God, you can praise the Lord for that, but if your joy is rooted in that job and one day you get fired, what's going to happen? It's like we talked about in the beginning. This is the reason people think that Christianity doesn't work for them is because the expectations where they've placed their hope and their faith is never where God designed for us to place our hope and our faith. And just to summarize it, Habakkuk says, God is my strength. Not God gives me strength. God is my strength. He is my strength. I don't find my strength by him giving it to me. I find it by abiding in his presence. Because when I am in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And that joy, based on who he is, leads me to find hope in the present. And so do you see the pathway here? You don't have to focus on the exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea, do you? You focus beginning on the cross of Jesus Christ and what, what God has done to bring you back to himself on all of the riches that God poured out on you in Christ in the cross, which will lead you to a place where you say, well, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? In this moment, no matter how bleak the situation is, because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that means he is Lord over my life and my situation right now, so I will choose to rejoice. Even when the world says that's foolish, I will have faith when there is there is no faith to be found anywhere else. I will have faith because I trust that God is not done with me because I still have breath in my lungs and my heart is still beating. God is not finished with me. So I will choose to rejoice today. And when I look at his password and I choose to rejoice, and I find myself entering into his presence, and that is where I will find my hope. And just to give you a perfect example of that, I want to tell you the story of Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner was an English missionary. He was shipwrecked on, the, on a remote island off the coast of South America and out to start a new mission on the continent of South America. Now, just think about that. So God's called him to the mission field. He's, he's seen to different places, and he hears God's voice say, go to South America. So they go to South America, but in route there, because they didn't have airplanes in that day, they shipwrecked. And they shipwrecked on a small 
island. Everybody on that island. So if you're, once again, your hope is in getting where you're going, first and foremost, God, what are you thinking? Because I'm not there. And the sad thing is, is that Alan Gardner and all of his companions that were on that ship, they died right there on that island. They tried to stick out and wait for somebody to come rescue them, but no one came. And finally, they all, every single one of them, died of starvation. And several months later, when the rescuers finally found them, they discovered Alan Gardner's body with his personal journal tucked underneath him. The last words. Well, let me, let me tell you. First of all, here's a quote from his journal. He says, Lord, at your feet I humbly fall, and I give you all I have, all that your love requires. So lack is best, for all is yours. Take care of me in this hour of test. Not let me have the thoughts of a complainer. Shipwrecked on an island. I let me have the thoughts of a complainer. Make me feel your power which gives life, and I will learn to praise you while carrying your cross. And the last thing that he inscribed in his journal, so they, they roll over his sickly corpse. And the last thing that he's written is Psalm 3410, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And here he wrote these words. Underneath Psalm 3410, he said, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. What? That's crazy talk, right? In the world, lies it's foolishness. But for those who walk in the path of hope, even in the face of certain death because of starvation, we will experience the overwhelming goodness of God. So there are aspects of God that you can only know when your fields are empty, when there are no cattle in your stalls, when you're lonely, when your marriage is broken, or when your children are making choices that you never taught them to make. There are things that you will hear from the Lord, things that you will experience from Him in those times that you will remember for the rest of your life. And see, hope is what God wants you to find, and hope is specifically what God wants you to experience today. We've seen with clarity the path that we walk on to find hope. And so now, as I did last week, because we talked about prophets being people with a specific time, a specific message for a specific people in a specific time and a specific place, we recognize that because of the Spirit of God who resides in all, uh, all of God's children, all the people who profess their faith in Christ, we have said, we have reminded ourselves that we are modern-day prophets, not a, not a pastor. Not, not me, not Tanner, not Philip, not, not, not just our, our deacons, every single one of you. God has put his spirit inside of you, and he is working in your life, giving you experiences and gifts and abilities, even negative experiences, even sufferings, so that you can find hope and that you would overflow that hope to the world around you. And so I ask you again this week, do you see a world around you that needs hope? Do you see people broken and hurting? Do you see people who need to, need to commune? with God? You do, absolutely. 
You need to commune with God yourself. You need hope for yourself. Just like Philip said, there are trials that have not even been spoken in this room right here, right now. But universally, God wants you to find hope by walking this path so that you, by looking at his password, by choosing to rejoice in the present, and by abiding in the presence of God and trusting that he will show you his goodness. In a desperate situation, you will find hope and will be able to overflow that hope in the lives of the people around you that are desperately seeking for hope as well. This is God's mission for his church. Oh, it's you. But I'm thankful for Habakkuk's honesty. I'm thankful that he poured his heart out candidly to God and that God led him on this path so that now, 2,500 years later, 2,600 years later, we can walk that same path and find hope as well. I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray again.